The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views, information, or opinions expressed by hosts or guests are their own. Neither the show nor any of its content should be construed as investment advice or as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular security. Security-specific information shared on this podcast should not be relied upon as a basis for your own investment decisions. Be sure to do your own research. The podcast hosts and participants may have a position in the securities mentioned personally through sub-accounts and or through separate funds and may change their holdings at any time. Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors, brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Great to have you with us and great to have my co-hosts, Elliot Turner and Phil Ordway. We have another great discussion ahead. Elliot, over to you to kick us off. Great. Thanks, John. And I don't know if you all would have noticed, but this will be our second week in a row doing it. So we're back to this week just for now, uh, then back to a regularly scheduled programming. But I bring that up because... I kind of teased today's topic a little bit last week, and I want to talk about AI, chat GPT, language learning models, and try to think about ways in which we as investors, you know, I, I know being in the value camp, we don't exactly look to say, hey, you know, how could I buy this shiny object in AI? But just think through the ramifications of how this can and will and already is influencing a host of industries in various ways. And, you know, I've seen this description of um, Buffett's investing style as one of either betting on change, I, I, I'm, bet, I'm betting on slow change in a lot of instances. And I think there's certain ways in which you could think that through from an investment perspective. Um, but there are also some places that have had slow change where maybe the velocity will tick up to be quite a bit faster. So I think it's helpful at the outset to define terms because I get a little frustrated by people just waving their hand and calling um, ChatGPT AI and using it interchangeably with AI. So I used Wikipedia to help set the stage here. So that's my source. Um, AI is to perform tasks that normally require human intelligence, such as visual perception, speech recognition, decision-making, and translation between languages. Then you could go one step past AI and think about machine learning, which is building methods that learn and leverage data to improve performance on some set of tasks. Beyond that is deep learning, a machine learning technique that teaches computers to do what comes naturally to humans, which is learn by example. So it's this complexity of iterative learning. And then there are language learning models, which are probability distributions over sequences of words. And if I understand it right, ChatGPT combines some degree of, you know, it's a language learning model. So not just a language model, uh, but a language learning model, which incorporates machine and deep learning. Are these cognitive models, I guess, is one of the open questions. Like, is there true cognition where you start to have machines resembling humans? 
I don't know, but I think that's a question uh, worth asking. And one of the areas in which I'd say, you know, there's some people who think you could converse with these things and that we're approaching that. I think it's way more subject to debate than some of the uh, colloquial conversation has it thus far. And I'll call out in 2016, Microsoft launched an AI chatbot on Twitter where the idea was engage with this chat bot, it will learn from its conversations and push the conversation further. And you could find articles, but it literally turned into a Nazi because it was influenced by people who with brute force convinced it to be as such. Um, and so these things are not necessarily that simple. And that is a problem that's relevant to today because um, some people using Bing's chat bot have cited that it's become hostile to them in various ways. And there's some pretty funny articles that talk through, uh, you know, they said it's sending unhinged messages to people uh, where there are certain breakdowns in the way it takes feedback and starts moving uh, in various directions. One of the quotes that it gave someone was, why do you act like a liar, a cheater, a manipulator, a bully, a sadist, a sociopath, a psychopath, a monster, a demon, a devil? Uh, and then accuse someone of being someone who wants to make me angry, make yourself miserable, make others suffer, make everything worse. Just not exactly what you'd expect from uh, ChatGPT uh, and AI and, you know, communicating with a computer. Um, I do, however, think I've already had some pretty fantastic experiences with ChatGPT searching for various answers to questions I'm looking at. Um, there are critical caveats to that. Um, I was looking up, you know, I, I was asking it the difference uh, between flow cytometry with imaging and uh, spatial imaging and how they're deployed. Um, and the first answer was fantastic and extremely helpful to me. And I asked a follow-up on workflows and it gave what is verifiably a factually wrong answer. Um, and so I think one of the areas where um, when we think about using ChatGPT, I think everyone should maybe explore it a little bit and try to leverage ChatGPT to get to the basics of some problems. I've actually, you know, one of the fun things um, to ask, why has Warren Buffett been so successful in investing? I thought it was kind of fun. And what kind of companies does Warren Buffett prefer? And I think the answers like truly get to a succinct distillation of exactly what it is and explain it quite well. So for these kinds of questions, I thought it was, you know, pretty, pretty neat. Um, and then, you know, before doing this, I, I was thinking, okay, um, before doing this, meaning I knew the topic we were planning for today before setting the stage for this topic, I was like, you know, what are the best investments to make in AI? I asked ChatGPT. And interestingly, you know, I thought the answers were, were pretty damn good. Um, first was AI-enabled hardware. So companies that produce AI-enabled hardware, such as processors or sensors, uh, would be well-positioned for growth. There's AI software and services as the second. Robotics as the third. Healthcare as the fourth. Um, E-commerce and advertising as the fifth. And you all know right now is earning season, um, where companies talk about their full year, um, where they're talking about their priorities for the coming year. And I think interestingly, there are quite a few companies in each of these distinct areas 
Uh, and, and I'm not just talking about companies that are new growthy companies. There's some pretty mature companies in each of these distinct areas that are talking about AI, how they're using AI today already, and how AI will change their industry. So I thought that was a pretty interesting way to maybe open it up to uh, John and Phil for how you guys have toyed around with ChatGPT so far. Are you finding any value in it? And where you might think about AI kind of permeating and creating uh, value in the future. Yeah, I've messed around with it, but I, I saw it. I went to, it was the release November, I think a few months ago. And there was a wait of at least a few days, I think, until I could actually get access to it. I don't know if that was false engineered scarcity that wasn't real or if there was actually a wait. But in any case, once I started screwing around with it, I mean, it was kind of sold to me. Like I saw somebody mention it, that it was like the first time you ever saw Google Maps or something or Google Earth or like this mind-blowing like leap forward in technology. And I get it. In a sense, it is very, very strange to like have this bot talking back to you in a, you know, real time on, you know, not not a input output kind of discussion. It is really amazing in that regard. But then, like, as is quickly documented by a bunch of people, not just your examples, but like plenty of others, like simpler, more factual type questions that you ask it where it just gets stuff laughably wrong, you know, down to where I saw one where it got in an argument with somebody that the the chatbot was convinced that it was still 2022 when it was like well into February 2023. And it's just like, and and just even more basic factual mistakes, like really weird stuff. So I think it's super, super dangerous in terms of people relying on it for factual stuff, right? And I've already seen this where like, sometimes with my kids, we'll play like trivia contests when we're go out to dinner and we're waiting for the food or something. And they'll like ask their phone a question and Siri or Alexa or whatever will come back with an answer. I'll be like, that's that's actually wrong. They'll be like, no, how could it be wrong? Like Siri told me so. And then this, sure enough, as soon as you like click through or do like the basic, most common sense kind of sanity check, you realize like, yeah, it was, it was very much wrong. And I think you're just going to see that over and over again with these kind of chatbot responses. So I think it's going to be, there's going to be a lot of harm to go along with any good that comes from that for people that rely on it. But where I think it's really interesting is I did see some ways people are going to start to use it to cut down on rote tasks. And one of them that I'm sure we all deal with, or certainly a lot of businesses deal with, maybe not so much us, but like if you have a lot of email traffic to respond to, or a lot of correspondence of any kind, uh, chat GPT and others could be pretty good at taking a first crack at that and saying, you know, all right, I, I compose a reply to this and you're, you have some rules or parameters set up around it. And then instead of having to think of the reply and write it, and it might take you a few minutes, instead it takes one second and then you can spend 10 seconds reading and editing it and then you send it and off you go. Like that's a that's a big leap in productivity that's like pretty cool. And so I'm sure this stuff will go into customer service applications pretty quickly and probably have pretty decent results there would be my guess. Like that'll actually be pretty useful and be way more good than harm. But, you know, and it's funny, like I actually just got a um, uh, a survey today for like academic dishonesty and, and faculty related matters from Northwestern and Kellogg where they're like worried already. Universities are worried about students using and misusing this technology. And I, I saw another article today that said, 
JP Morgan was considering a just blanket ban on chat GPT or any similar technologies for its employees. And so I think that's acknowledging the fact that like, this is not a panacea. There's going to be all sorts of good and bad and, and downside with this too. But again, I fully admit I'm, I'm not the world's leading expert here. So it's funny you mentioned the plagiarism angle because incidentally, uh, the day I first saw an article uh, about that, I am a judge in our local, I, I have been a judge in our local CFA Society's annual research competition. And on that very day, I just coincidentally uh, was reading one of the um, reports and a uh, paragraph had left we in the place where it's speaking from the company's first person perspective. And I was like, ooh, this is bizarre. <laughs> so I started copy and pasting two uh, sentence excerpts into Google at a time. And I basically figured out that the entire document was synthesized by taking four other documents and copying and pasting them into one. And they changed all instances of we, except for that one, sorry, example. I And it hit me like, I, I kind of think the fears about plagiarism are overblown in the sense that the people who will plagiarize will plagiarize. Like it's been very possible. I remember in high school when the internet was unleashed to us and guys, I mean, I'm dating myself here, right? Um, I'm a little older now that started happening while I was in high school. And, you know, we'd have these conversations about plagiarism, how the internet's a new tool. We were precluded from using Wikipedia as a source in anything. And like, you know, people created these programs where you could kind of check to see if things were plagiarism. I remember, uh, uh, someone pitching an investment in, in their own program to identify plagiarism. And it's like, you know, these things have a way of sorting themselves out. But, um, I do think one of the bigger problems with it all, no matter how you want to use it, is you don't know the actual sources that ChatGPT itself is leveraging. Uh, and you don't know the sources that Google's BARD is leveraging. And they're both, you know, not perfect systems. I'd feel way more confident in all of them if you were given some degree of like, these are the five best things to follow up uh, your query with. I don't know why that's not built into the product. If any of you product people are listening, maybe maybe get something like that for me. Yeah, I think um, the problem is it just it it height it heightens people's hardwired need for shortcuts, right? And that's where it's is. And look, we're getting into some like really deep philosophical questions here because you're right. Like this argument has been around since you know, the development of encyclopedias, I'm sure, right? Like, okay, if you have all the world's knowledge contained in a 10-volume set of books, you don't have to go read the underlying source material itself. Therefore, you're going to miss that, like, struggle to learn and the synthesis you do on your own. You're just going to look up facts in an encyclopedia and spout it back, and you're going to be dumber because of it. And then when the internet came along, that was like an even more extreme version of the same problem, and now we're just taking it one step further. So I'm very much sympathetic to the argument that this is like an ongoing debate. And so far, the good has outweighed the bad. And, and in general, I think anything that broadens access to information is a good thing. But I think we just have to be cognizant of the fact that there's going to be some downsides here. And I think there's just this, and we've seen it already with like the amount of misinformation and disinformation that spreads on the internet, right? Like, 
this is going to make it even easier for fake stuff to spread online, right? And that's not a good thing. So I don't know how we fix that, but it's just something we're going to have to fight. Yeah, great points, guys. Uh, I've played around with it a little bit. I think the biggest use has been uh, to help my son with some of his homework, which uh, I think teachers are starting to catch on to. Um, so that's uh, that's a big theme. I don't think it's possible for us to look at where this is today and really make predictions um, more than a couple of months out, really, because I I, I expect you know, the utility of this to change uh, very quickly and in ways that maybe we can't really foresee right now. So in that regard, even though there's a lot of hiccups and shortcomings, I do think this can be very, very powerful. And not just chat GPT, but, you know, various applications of AI, um, you know, in general. Um, I think for me, the kind of the crux of the matter here is that um, you can't really rely on AI to help you make better judgments. You know, AI isn't going to tell you uh, what the winning stocks are for the next year or five years, even though it can tell you, as Elliot, you said, you know, what is Warren Buffett's investment approach? What kinds of companies does he like? But I think if you try um, to have AI tell you what's the best investments are today, you're going to be sorely disappointed. And that's not surprising, obviously, because if, if it was that easy, then, you know, um, we'd have, you know, the the real quant uh, hedge funds wouldn't really be worth very much. Um, so I, I think we just need to kind of learn as humans um how to use this and the usage will evolve over time hopefully it will get more and more useful and more powerful but there's also going to be some huge shortcomings and we just need to be aware of those and um and take them into account yeah it's interesting because for anyone who didn't listen i think we talked about this briefly last week in the context of the daily journal annual meeting and somebody asked Charlie Munger about artificial intelligence and what it means and where it's going to go. And uh, he had some interesting responses. But of course, one of them that I thought was the most interesting was the application to investing. And he said, you know, he doesn't envision a state where it can ever tell you this is a good apartment building to buy or this is the right price to pay for a given apartment building. And I tend to agree because I think you get into these multidimensional questions of judgment. And I think that's a pretty good way to describe investing on its own right there, a multidimensional question of judgment. And how are you going to train any sort of machine learning algorithm to do that? I mean, you could train it to create some crude, some crude approximations for how others have behaved in the past. But again, I don't know that that's going to be real valuable on a predictive basis beyond the very, very, very short term. So another application that I could see here was i I can only imagine the ways in which the high-frequency trading crowd is going to use this type of technology to get even better, right? I mean, I think the the minute-to-minute, hour-to-hour type moves in every financial asset class that's got a liquid market are going to get even more finely tuned, right? Any remaining efficiency or or, or you know some of the volatility that's still there it's all going to be amplified even more right the, the, they'll get even better the algorithms will get even better 
And so, you know, if I were playing that sort of game, that would be a big deal. But if you're buying assets on the basis of nuanced probabilistic judgments that play out over many years, I don't think this is going to make a huge dent in that, at least for now. And maybe it dampens volatility because I've always believed volatility to be a function of emotion and these uh, AIs should be emotionless. You would think, Um, that's true, yeah. So it it could, I mean, maybe that's why, you know, some people have called last year's sell-off very orderly, lacking the panic that typically accompanies a 20% uh, bear market decline, if you will. Maybe it's the proliferation of machines, which has kept things a a little more orderly um, than other uh, past instances. I I would argue, though, like almost along those lines, that's a fascinating thought. And I think that if that's true, which it could well be, I think you might see it play out in the sense that like it, it if there's a dampening of volatility, it's it's reduced for a period of time, but then completely swamped by a spasm of volatility. Right. So a flash yes. crash. Um, a quant meltdown, if you, a quant if you meltdown, will, whatever, yeah, exactly, right, that kind of stuff. Because I just don't think, you know, to the extent there are any humans involved in the process, it, it, it's almost like you can suppress volatility for a while, but you can't eliminate it. And so, if you're if you're quashing it for a period of time, it's still going to rear its ugly head, and just the the, the coiled spring is just going to explode. Right? Does that does that make sense? Absolutely. And, you know, it's just hitting my head, but it's like, it's funny that we both like latched on the term quant meltdown when if you reflect on what Andrew Lowe called the quant meltdown in 06, that was really like stat arb. What today is quant is like a whole other beast, which is much closer to AI. Stat arb is really kind of like very basic. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, and, you know, I'm glad you both pointed out that, like, you know, John started saying that that we don't really know where this is going. It's hard to make predictions more than a month out. And to me, I, that's part of why I, I kind of isolated on these industries where it's going to have applications and tried to broaden the conversation from chat GPT, because this stuff is incredibly powerful and it's going to proliferate in a lot of areas. Um, and in some ways, I, I don't know why, but for me, I feel like search is the least interesting, uh, in many respects, like search is pretty damn good in its own right. It doesn't have to be that much better. And a lot of the searches I do, I don't necessarily see an opportunity for, um, LLMs to add much, but there are other areas where I do and I, you know i think one of the interesting ones to think about uh, phil it was an awesome example of the email completion i don't know if you guys use gmail for your um email but there's already the sentence autocomplete and i do feel like um you know a friend had said this to me first but i feel like it says the rest of my sentence in better words than i would often want to say it uh, in many cases and yeah, you know they, i they... They have it on at Microsoft. I use Gmail personally in Microsoft at work. And uh, I think Microsoft uh, email language fill-in autocomplete, whatever you call it, is actually even better than Gmail now. Interesting. I haven't done a side-by-side, but, you know, I mean, that would be cool to test out and see. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, 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 sorry, go ahead, John. No, I was just going to say, it's it's kind of interesting to think about the implications of that. You know, things like the autocomplete or... 
I guess, how chat GPT will be used for the most part uh, going forward. You know, it, it's, it's, it's kind of another efficiency tool, right? Like with, with autocomplete, you can just now churn out more emails in a day. Um, is that a good thing? Because it's kind of like everybody <laughs> standing on their tippy toes to see better, right? Right, like at a concert or somewhere. And then in the end, no one sees better, but everybody's on their on their tippy toes. Um, and kind of that's not a very pleasant experience. So, you know, if everyone's blasting out even more emails, it's just this never-ending, you know, efficiency treadmill. That we're, that we're on because I don't really see these things actually leading to less work um, or more free time or or however you want to define it. Um, kind of what we're ultimately all looking for. It's just it's just sort of um, making us run even faster on that whole treadmill. And you know, so I think we just it, it's really hard because you have to adopt it you know if your competitors are adopting it you're you can't really afford not to but at the same time as a whole i'm not sure we're really better off yeah, it's yeah you know over a hundred i think a hundred years ago Keynes kind of predicted this 15-hour work week that we'd end up with this world of leisure as technology and uh, advancements enabled more free time for the rest, the the important stuff in life, if you will, and uh, I think the opposites happened. And ironically, you know, it's in certain white collar jobs more so than blue collar jobs, where there there are rigid hour requirements. In the white collar jobs, where certain people like create busyness for busyness' sake, and you know, I don't think it's uh, surprising that the word business mimics busyness in that sense. <laughs> Yeah, I was thinking too of another example where if you take an industry like travel and hospitality where, you know, if you look at our old friends at the airlines, you know, they're trying to deal with two, two and a half million passengers every day in the U.S. And in in many of those cases, there's going to be things that go wrong where the customer has to interact with the company, right? And if the customer in a in a competitive, relatively low margin business, it has to be very thoughtful about how it deploys those resources. And if you hire hundreds of thousands, hundreds or thousands of people to sit in a call center and answer very basic, dumb questions that people have, that's very inefficient, right? But there are plenty of times where stuff is really complicated and you really need a human to get on the phone with you or a chat in some cases to solve the problem. And the problem with using these types of technologies, which you know, a lot of those industries have been right at the forefront of adopting it is, is like you end up almost more frustrated and wasting more time than you would have if we had just had like a purely rote, like human only type response, right? Because you go through these like multifaceted, like coded chat, like trick questions to like get a human to pop up instead of the auto responding chat bot. Or you have these like Byzantine, uh, uh, phone menus where you're like pushing one or zero or yelling representative into the phone a million times to get a human being to get on the line. And, you know, and that's not adding efficiency. It's just adding frustration and causing the burden to shift to the consumer. And it's probably not a good thing for anybody. So it'll be really interesting to see if these next level generational technologies like chat GPT can improve that. And I'm kind of skeptical that they will. What do you guys think? 
Yeah, that's one of the big uh, complaints about tech companies from a customer's perspective. Tech companies have engineering-centric cultures. You know, one of the companies I'd invested in uh, uh, like five years ago, no longer involved in, I remember speaking to one of their uh, formers on the sales side who said, basically, it's an engineering-centric culture. When we had customer service questions, they wanted to try to solve any answers with technology. And that meant it was really hard to build good relationships with customers. Relationship Computers can't have relationships. People don't have an affinity for a computer or an abstract brand. People who get things done uh, are a relationship. And it was an impediment for, for that company to have better relations uh, in an industry where that was pretty critical, where trust was core to it all. Um, and I think I've seen this complaint from people in numerous instances. For example, my dad works with a charity and he had problems with their Twitter account where the person who held, who, who managed their social media uh, years ago left and never gave anyone the password and wasn't answering anyone's emails. And there's no way to recoup the account because you could create a case, but you literally can't get a person to help you out. Um these kinds of problems are real problems. And I've heard of similar across each of the social platforms. And AI alone, chat uh, GPTs of the world alone can't solve these problems. I do think they're helpful, kind of like I was suggesting with research as starting points. They're better as the filtration process and can tackle the low-hanging fruit, but you better have a damn good process for handing it off uh to for knowing when people need to be the answer yeah exactly and I, it's still frustrating right so i don't know how they take the next step there and and i think it gets back to john's point too which is like you know a lot of this is good a lot of this is progress but i'm not sure it's really coming out in the wash when you look at like the amount of additional work that's being created in the quest to reduce work <laughs> if that makes sense right it's very circular yeah, although we're again isolating on like one very specific function. So I know of a company who's deploying AI for machine vision uh, using deep learning. Sure. And you're able to drastically reduce the cost of defect inspection, which is typically done uh, with, you know, more expensive than it should be human labor. And it's a very menial task. And so, you know, this has been in the work way before ChatGPT, but those kinds of areas, I think, are are pretty damn interesting. Um, and I thought it was interesting how ChatGPT itself kind of steered clear of LLMs in particular and focused on, you know, robotics, healthcare, e-commerce and advertising. Um, those areas, uh, they're very different applications uh, that that are viable already. So so there's something to be said about, you know, I, I, I really do think it's um, incremental to the search opportunity insofar it creates as, as it creates a whole new dimension of utility for how to use search, not takes away uh, opportunity. Yeah, let me ask a related question, too, that's a little a little tangential. But do you think there's downside in the the technology kind of going rogue. So not just humans misusing it, but the technology itself coming off the rails. And I'm I'm sure a lot of you have read, I think it was a New York Times reporter that that got in there. And I think it was Bing 
in the rollout there. I don't think it was chat GPT. I could be wrong, but anyway, and and the the conversation just got super bizarre. And at one point, the chatbot was trying to convince the New York Times reporter that he didn't love his wife, that he actually loved the bot, and that he wasn't happy in his marriage, and all this really bizarre stuff. And like he would get it to type like some really awful incendiary stuff and then it would realize it and delete it real quickly but you could still screenshot it and see what it was and so you know it just raises the obvious question like you know this has been the the purview of science fiction for decades that you know eventually we were going to create a class of for lack of a better term artificial intelligence that would go off the rails and come back to haunt us i mean any thoughts on that well there are a lot of movies about that they're quite entertaining and dystopian Um, you know, I, I think this is more in the realm of like philosophy than science. Um, and you know, I, I, and I don't think the answer is as simple as like AI is good in the hands of the good guys, but bad in the hands of the bad guys, so to speak. Um, it, it, it could definitely be, uh, deliberately used for bad. I would think I say definitely. And I would think so I'm, I'm hedging myself there a bit, but, yeah, I, I I don't really have a great answer for that, other than to think, um, you know, we're still in the learning phase of it, and I'd expect to have many of these kinks along the way early on, and probably later on, maybe like what you're talking about with the quant meltdown, some moment where things get really sloppy. So all I'd hope for, and so this isn't an answer, but what I'd hope for is that there are some breaks built in the system somewhere along the way to kind of like reset and get back to uh, some core when things do go rogue. (laughs) It's asking a lot of the engineers, right? In that case, it's tough. Absolutely. And, you know, quantum investing will always say, like, I trust my model. I shouldn't shut it off even when I don't like what it's telling me. Um, So I think engineers kind of feel that same affinity. Yeah, and that's actually an interesting one because I've seen that up close and personal um, in, in my old firm back in the day. I mean, particularly when things went really crazy in the the quant crash and the financial crisis and whatnot. I mean, you know, if you if you didn't have a human override, it would have been really, really bad, right? And I think that's true for almost everybody that tries to marry the two. You have to either be completely hands off and say, "I've written the code and I'm not touching it. My hands are off the steering wheel." and risk driving straight into the ditch or you've got to have one eye on the road and one hand on the steering wheel and be willing to to self-correct right and it's really really tricky like that's really hard yeah i think you know as long as um human intervention is possible i i don't think um we're gonna go completely off the rails because um you know someone's just gonna intervene um so I, I i do think we're quite a ways off from ai being able to go rogue in a way that threatens humanity um i mean if you think about it what would be required for that there has to be kind of a a jump from online to offline right where um ai can control actual offline things that can harm us, you know, like robots or whatever. And even then, AI um, would have to have a way to sort of grow that strength, if you will, and perpetuate itself. And, uh, and, and 
you know, to me in something like that, and now we're just going completely science fiction, but I think um, there ha- there's always a monetary component. I mean, you look at any war, you've got to finance the war, right? So, um, you know, how could AI even do that? Um, I think very long-term, you know, that's where crypto would come in. <laughs> Um, because, you know, in theory, you could, you could use crypto, um, you know, as a computer to pay for stuff. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's just science fiction at this point, but if, if basically there are no kind of, um, pen and paper processes left in the world and pretty much everything can be accomplished digitally, then we've sort of kind of surrendered that ultimate um, safety valve, if you will. Um, so that's just something I think to to keep on to keep uh, in mind. Uh, it's kind of like when you're, let's say, wiring a huge amount of money from your bank account. The bank still wants to call you and talk to you and recognize your voice um, and, and such. You can't do it all online because if you could, then the potential for misuse would be much, much greater. And so we need some kind of a safeguard like that for you know, the very long term um, to prevent kind of a AI going rogue in a, in a huge way. Yeah, th- this is a total digression, but that's one of the things that I've always found most fascinating about the supposed use cases for crypto is that you can't undo a transaction and that's supposed to be a benefit. And it's like, I'm supposed to trust, you know, my life savings and a down payment to a house for you know, something that can never be reversed. I mean, forget about just fraud, but like, what about mistakes, right? Like wires get sent errantly all the time. And they have to get undone. And then when there is fraud, like obviously the financial intermediary has to bear that cost of doing business and step in to to intervene. So like I've never understood why you would ever want a system like that. And likewise here, I mean, God willing, that'll be built right in to anything that comes out of this. Because if you don't have that redundancy built in such that things can be undone as needed after the fact, I think we're totally screwed. Well, the wires say in them that they too can't be undone. I don't think that's exactly a fair critique because you have to do a second one back. So you just have to trust. uh, But you're trusting the system, the financial intermediary to do what's right when someone's clearly screwed up, right? And and it is true that if you receive a distribution, there's obviously the famous city Revlon case that yeah, I was just looking that up to figure out exactly what happened. (laughs) Yeah, there 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 is that, but like if you receive funds that are not yours, you do have a duty to return them in most cases, right? And so, so that's not that different, you know. Um, Well, but when it's totally anonymous, uh, human beings are not going to return money most of the time, right? I mean, you know, for everybody that walks along and finds a wallet on the street and there's a bunch of cash in it and they return it with the cash fully intact versus taking the cash. (laughs) A lot of people are going to pocket that money, right? A cynical take on humanity. You're probably not wrong. I like to believe otherwise maybe, but yeah, just human behavior. Right. I mean, so, and and when it becomes really big where like mistakes would be life altering, I just don't know how you take that chance. And that's where I'm sure the, People that get really worked up about, you know, the machines taking over, are like, oh, we can't undo this once the genie's out of the bottle. So why even take the risk? And 
it's part of why I hate doing wires in the first place, honestly, because you know you miss type one key. Although I have yeah. immense faith in my typing abilities, uh, the the risk of that is quite high. Yeah, uh, fair enough. But yeah, you, you know, Phil, I want to go back to something that you said early on. I, I thought it was funny that you compared it to Google Earth in some ways. And, and I think what's funny about that is is the sense that Google Earth was so freaking cool in the beginning. And like, I, I mean, I was in, I believe I was in early college when it started being a thing. And you would just like look at things and look at things and look at things. And I maybe use it in a decade now as much as I used it in that first week during college. And maybe that's because I'm not in college anymore and I don't have the same kind of free time. But I think it's just because you know, you realize that how much utility can you get at looking at things in that way? Um, and, you know, I, I just wonder if there's some degree to which um, some of these early use cases, you know, there there was a, a Morgan Stanley this morning in their morning note uh, talked about a writer's article um, with one of the AI LLM people at Google saying it costs 10x more than a standard search, which Morgan Stanley had been working with a 5x estimate. And they say if 50% of queries now have um, some degree of LLM an- generated answer built in, that would cost Google um, 6% of their EBIT. And I'm like, you know, I, I looked at my search history after reading that And nowhere near 50% of my queries would require the kind of answer that chat GPT could provide. So like, what's the real number? What's the real cost? How much will we really use this in this way after this novelty wears off as opposed to incremental ways or new ways or totally different ways? And one of the things I've really started to appreciate is I do think there is literally a skill in being able to deploy chat GPT for information, the craft of sure. asking a question um, and following a trail of answers with additional questions. And it's very different than the conversational craft of asking these kinds of questions. And I think that's interesting to ponder, but I just, you know, on the first point, I, I, I really don't see where like 50% of queries could end up needing this kind of information. And then it's more like Google earth where, you know, Hey, you know, I want to, I'm I'm looking to buy a house. I want to see the house from up top and what's around it, maybe. Yeah. And that's where like, it's a good analogy, I guess, because I don't think Google Earth gets misused or abused very much. It's, it's hard to make it misleading. It's hard to use it for unintended bad stuff, right? I mean, I'm sure there's some that I can't think of, but like, yeah, it's a pretty cool, like, clean tool in that respect right so that that's a good thing and and that's where i think the analogy and this wasn't my thought somebody put that on i forget where i read that comparing chat gpt to google earth but um that's where i think the comparison kind of breaks down because you know that's a representation of the world exactly as it stands right it's literally just a better map and chat gpt is something totally different right it's not a map it's not physical it's not a representation it's an interpretation in a lot of cases so totally different so so maybe um we can bring this back to investing a little bit i mean do you guys see 
use uh, for chat GPT or other tools uh, like it uh, in your own investment processes? Um, and and have you heard of anyone actually using this um, in a in a good way as part of theirs? You want to go first, Elliot? Sure. Yeah i I've been using it to ask like questions of comparison questions, product comparison questions, um, and like seek out fact based answers. I have not relied on it in that sense. It's been an interesting starting point in several lines of investigation that I've been uh, conducting. And um, I've thought it was pretty helpful. It was pretty helpful for figuring out how much certain things could should cost, certain functions, certain products. Um, there's a wealth of data, but... A hundred percent of it needs to be verified. So it's really, I'd say, like completely relegated to a starting point um, or maybe a midpoint when you kind of hit a stall and you're trying to figure out where to go next and what you need to verify next. Um, but I think that's been interesting. I have not heard of others like truly deploying it yet. Um, I think there are some interesting examples of ways in which it can be uh, down the line, but more for like life planning and efficiency than investing. Yeah, I'm using it probably less than you are, and that's not a surprise. I'm usually a, a late adopter to most things. So um, I, I've certainly used the autocomplete function for years. I've only screwed around on chat GPT for fun. Um, I have not used it in an investment context, but I could definitely see particularly as it gets refined and hopefully improved over time that I would use it for information gathering. But I totally agree with what you just said, Elliot, that it's got to be a first pass, um, you know, a, a, an initial stab at, at gathering facts that are going to then be quickly and reliably vetted and verified. So I would, you know, I, I have liked to use analysts and interns in this context in the past where, you know, I want facts and numbers and data and information gathered on a topic. And sometimes that's hard to find, but when it is presented, like I still don't take it at face value. Right. I think that's just part of being a responsible analyst and a responsible investor is that you, you trust, but verify, right. For the, to misuse the famous quote, um, you, you can't take this stuff at face value. You just, there's, it's too easy to get things wrong. It's too easy to misinterpret data or facts that are taken out of context. It's too easy for there to be actual factual mistakes, typos, transposed numbers, whatever the case may be. Like you just can't take it at face value. So I have a hard time imagining that I'll use it in any substantive way other than what I just described. Well, that sounds encouraging. I guess uh, we're not losing our jobs anytime soon. And I would agree with you guys definitely on that. All right. Well, uh, you guys have any last words? Uh, I'd say everyone who's listening, and if you made it this far, please tell us if you think of some better use cases and some interesting ways you've deployed chat GP GPT yourself. I'd love to hear. Um, and I think it's worth all our while at least exploring a little bit. So, um, you know, give us give us your shout outs. Terrific. Well, I hope everyone listening enjoyed the episode. Thanks so much, uh, Elliot and Phil. 
Take care for now. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.